Well, welcome everybody. We're going to begin, as I said, a four-week session or series on Advent. And today we're going to talk about the power and hope of a normal life. I know when I use that word normal, everybody kind of wants to qualify that. What's a normal life? But I think you'll understand what I mean as we get into the message. So I want to start by kind of giving you a little bit of introduction. Some of you here who come from a more traditional background probably have known more about Advent than I did, you know, the first uh, 20 years of my salvation. Um, But as I study the Scripture more and, you know, remember I've told you this before, when you read the Scripture, it doesn't matter where, uh, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, when you read the Scripture, look for Jesus, because this is what the Scripture communicates to us. And the symbolism of Christ is so amazing in the Scripture, if, if we will look for it and allow God to reveal to us what it is He is wanting us to see. Amen? And this is one of the things that Scripture is not on your message guide. By the way, does everyone have a message guide? If you don't have one, raise your hand. Anybody need? We need. Uh, we got a couple up here. If we could uh, get about three or four message guides, that would be awesome. And while they're doing that, I'll read a Scripture to you that is not on uh, your message guide. It's John 6.40. John 6.40, Jesus says, And this is the will of Him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son... Now that's important. We are to see the Son. He was talking to people who were standing before Him in a physical sense. And so you might say, well, I can't see Jesus in a physical sense today, but that's not how we need to see Jesus. There were a lot of people who saw Jesus in a physical sense who didn't see Jesus. You know what I mean? So he says, this is the will of God, the will of Him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have everlasting life. And I will raise Him up at the last day. Who sees the Son and believes. So we've got to do more than just see, we've got to believe. But we'll never believe until we see. And God has given us the Scriptures that we might see Him. And the Word is filled with imagery that reveals, that will cause us to see the Son of God. It's the glory of God to conceal a matter, the proverb says. It's the honor of kings to search out a matter. And the Scripture says you are kings and priests unto God. It's your honor to search out those things that God has put in His Word so that you may see Christ. So let's talk about Advent. Uh, I I put a little note up there. Secular society, this is a quote from um, uh, uh, an article about Advent that I read. Secular society knows a little something about Christmas, but virtually nothing about Advent. The danger for the church is to end up going in the same direction. In our rush to get to the manger, we are tempted to downplay or completely ignore the Advent themes long held necessary so that we can come to the cradle of Christ in the right way. There's a reason why Jesus was born, why He lay in that manger And when we come to the manger, when we come to that cradle, when we come to see the baby Jesus, there there needs to be an understanding of not only who we're seeing, but, but what this is all about. And this is what Advent does for us. It helps us to see and to discern more correctly what His coming is about. So, some necessary forerunners to Christmas. The first is the apocalypse. Now, we get all freaked out by this word apocalypse, but it's, it's not a real freaky word. It just simply means revealing or revelation. So in your, in your King James Bible, it may say the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. 
It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what this word means. It means revelation. In the Scripture, it's actually translated appearing. And it's used in 1 Peter, for instance, when he talks about the appearing of the Lord, the apocalypse, the, the revelation, the unveiling, the revealing of the Lord. So there is something about Advent that is associated with the revelation of Jesus Christ, His unveiling, His revealing, the apocalypse. Traditionally, the church has begun the Advent season with a look at one of Jesus' apocalyptic sayings, which in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke come toward the end of those uh, Gospels, at the end of His ministry, just prior to His arrest and crucifixion. Advent begins by looking to the end of all things as well as to the ongoing travails of history that ultimately bring us to the end. This is important. The ongoing travails of history. We're living in history. Remember, we, we, we just finished two weeks of talking about Jeremiah 29. And, and history, we said, is what? It's his story. This is what history is. What we are involved in is his story. And we are a part of his story. And so Advent looks at the end of all things. Advent causes us not to just look back at the manger at his first coming, but more importantly, Advent causes us to look forward to his coming, to his second coming. We can't celebrate his first coming without understanding there is an ultimate coming. And so it causes us to look to the end of all things. And it causes us to look also to the ongoing travails of history. And it's those travails, it's that working out, it's, it's that writing of, if you will, his story that brings us to the end of all things. And why is this important? Because if Jesus is not coming again, then there is very little to celebrate in His having arrived here on earth in the first place. You guys understand that, right? If Jesus is not going to come again, then there's not really much point in celebrating His birth. People are born every day. People die every day. But Jesus is unique in His birth, and He's unique in His death. And because He is unique, the Scripture calls Him the first fruits, the last Adam, the second man. There are very important reasons and themes associated with that language that we don't have time to go into today, but it's, it's a fascinating topic. And so if Jesus is not coming again, there's very little to celebrate in, in His having arrived the first time. In a future judgment of sin, if a future judgment of sin is not possible, listen church, because when we look ahead to His coming, there is a judgment associated also. And if a future judgment of sin is not possible, then the birth of Jesus is reduced to quaint sentimentality and is restricted to being an event long ago and far away. And we can just have this nice, warm, fuzzy feeling about an event long ago and far away when a little baby named Jesus was laid in a manger. Bless his heart. And we can set our nativities up and we can talk about the baby Jesus, and that's great. But we can't talk about those things. We can't celebrate those things. We can't truly understand those things apart from the reality of his coming again and there being a judgment. Now, Jesus declared this in John, John's gospel. John writes it. He pins it. And Jesus said, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world shall be cast out. And Jesus paid the penalty for sin. You say, well, if he paid the penalty for sin, then what, what judgment is there left? Well, this is why God sends the Holy Spirit. And we can still behave sinfully, right? But, but the sin that that the Spirit of God is rejecting or, or convicting men of today is the rejection of Christ. And there will be an accounting given one day for all who have rejected Christ, who gave His life to pay for the sins of the world. 
And so this is a theme of Advent that we cannot escape. And it's a theme that the church needs to embrace and understand. And not not get freaked out about it, but understand it's part of his story. It's part of his plan. And we, where is our position? John says in his first letter, 1 John 4, he says in this, love has been perfected that in the day of judgment, we have, believers have, those in Christ have boldness and confidence because as he is, so are we in this world. Do you know him? Is he your life or is he just some figure that you give allegiance to? Is he just some tradition you follow? See, Advent can just be some traditional thing that the church does year in and year out. Or it can be something that can spark our faith and help us understand why we are to live with anticipation and expectancy daily in Christ. So if we don't understand these things, the first advent of Christ is drained of meaning if the second is denied or qualified somehow. So the second thing that we are going to look at in these four weeks is kind of different. A person we don't think about a lot at Christmas time, and that's John the Baptist. Yet traditionally, John the Baptist has been a theme that the church, when we talk about Advent, a very important figure. If you look at the average manger scene, sometimes you find surprising figures there. The wise men, you guys know this, we've talked about this in years past. You know that the wise men were not there at the birth of Jesus. Now They're they're in all of our manger scenes, but if you read the scripture carefully, you'll understand that Jesus was probably about two years old by the time the wise men got there. doesn't take away from anything. It's just, that's just the reality. So <clears throat> we have the wise men there at the manger when in reality they weren't. Today, you know, we see Santa Claus at the manger too, and we think that's so cool because they're Santa Claus, you know, who's become the god of Christmas for the world. Uh, there he is worshiping the Savior, and, and, and we think that's touching and cute, and there's nothing wrong with that, you know. I get the symbolism there, but, but we're talking about reality and real things here. There are real people that should be associated with that, and Santa Claus is not one of them, but John the Baptist is, okay? But you'll, you're never going to see John the Baptist in your manger scene. It just, it just isn't going to happen yet. He is linked with the coming of Jesus in the Old Testament. He's linked right there with the coming of Jesus, and so there is uh, this figure, John the Baptist, uh, that you're not going to see anywhere, but yet John the Baptist is the Advent forerunner for Jesus. Now, we're going to talk more about John the Baptist, in, not this week, but in, a, in another message. We're going to talk a lot about John. So Advent, remember what I told you, Advent means coming or arrival, That's what that means, this word. It's a big word. We don't really fully know what it means because we're not used to using this word. But that's simply what it means. The focus of the entire season is the celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ in the first advent and the anticipation of the return of Christ the King in His second advent. You guys get that, right? Jesus isn't coming as a baby when he comes in his second advent. His second arrival is not going to be as a baby. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And advent points to that, causes us to look to that and anticipate that before we get to the celebration of the manger that we call Christmas. So Advent is far more than simply marking a 2,000-year-old event in history. It's celebrating a truth about God. The revelation of God in Christ, whereby all of creation might be reconciled to God. You realize that's what God did through Christ on the cross. 
And there is this process, listen, that reconciliation, there is a process taking place by which God will bring about the consummation and the ultimate reality of all that has already been paid for at the cross. You guys get that? Jesus isn't continuing to pay for something. The reality that we don't see all things under him does not change the fact that all things are under him. Remember, this is what Hebrews 2 says. Though we don't see all things under him, yet we see who? Jesus, crowned with glory. Because all things have been put under him, whether we see it or not. It is reality. And this is what Advent is declaring. This is what we're celebrating, that reality, even though we don't see it in the fullness yet, it is still a reality. So it's this process in which we now participate. We're part of the story. We're part of this process and the consummation of which we anticipate. We, We may see the consummation in our lifetime. We may not see the consummation of it all in our lifetime. But that does not change the fact that the consummation is coming. I wasn't there when Jesus was born the first time. I may not be here when Jesus comes back the second time. But whether I'm here or not does not change the fact that He is coming. There is no question about it. He is coming he is. In this double focus on past and future, Advent also symbolizes the spiritual journey of individuals and a congregation. You don't have a spiritual journey apart from those that are around you. We're not called to be islands unto ourselves. We're not called to walk our own spiritual journey apart from everybody. We have an individual journey, but we are part of a body And we have a corporate journey, a corporate purpose, a corporate life. It's both. One is not more important than the other. They're both true, and they're both important. And it's this journey, through this journey that we affirm that Christ has come, that He is present in the world today and that He will come again in power. Amen? That acknowledgement provides a basis for kingdom ethics, for holy living, arising from a profound sense that we live between the times and are called to be faithful stewards of what is entrusted to us as God's people. Jesus said it this way, Occupy until I come again. Be busy about the business of the kingdom. Not in a bad sense. In other words, live faithful kingdom lives until I come again. This is what he was saying. Live a normal kingdom life. Remember, we're talking about the power and hope of a normal life today. So as the church celebrates God's inbreaking into history in the incarnation and it anticipates a future consummation to that history for which all creation is groaning, awaiting its redemption. This is the language of Romans. Paul says all creation is groaning, awaiting the redemption, the adoption that will ultimately come when the sons of God are manifest. We are the sons of God, but there is a fullness, a consummation that will be manifest one day. That is not manifest yet, but the reality of it is no less. Don't be fooled just because you don't see what you think you should see. And it also confesses its own responsibility as a people. We as a Congregation, we as individuals, through this process, through this reality, we are confessing our responsibility as a people commissioned to love God with all of our heart and to love one another 
as ourselves. I like the way Jesus said it, love one another as I have loved you. Amen? So let's talk about the power of hope. The power of hope. We're going to begin in Isaiah chapter 2. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. The word that Isaiah the son of Amoz saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains. Now that's, that's interesting. That's an interesting picture there. The mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains. So we have, we have the mountain on top of the mountains. It's kind of like we've got kings and we've got kings. But one is a king of kings. We've got mountain and we've got mountains, but one is a mountain of mountains. You see, it's declaring who God is. He is above all. There is nothing, there is no one no power, no position, nothing that is above him. This is the God we are declaring. This is the God who saved you, church. This is why we have hope. This is our God. So he says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills. And all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us His ways, and we shall walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, in their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. That's the promise of a coming day. But the promise of that coming day doesn't mean we cannot and we should not strive to live in that promise and in that truth and in that reality today. How do we know that? This is why Jesus said, love your enemies. In other words, don't take out vengeance against your enemy like you would have before. I have come. This is why Jesus at the cross said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Does that mean those men won't be held accountable for what they did? Absolutely not. They will be held accountable. But Jesus asked that they be forgiven. When do we beat our plowshares into, or our, our swords into plowshares? When do we begin that process? Right now. We begin it right now. That's why you're commanded not to extract revenge from those who do something you don't like. The only sword you're supposed to have and exercise is this sword right here. Now that doesn't mean we don't have justice, we don't have governments and authorities, we do. But you see the difference is God has set those in place. He's the one that gets to execute vengeance, and he will one day. He will come again, and he will execute vengeance and judgment. But right now, that's not what we're called to do. This is not the picture that the Scripture is giving us. There is a picture of hope here in Isaiah chapter 2 that the Scripture was giving to Israel but it's also giving to us. Isaiah wrote this before the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities. 
He wrote this before Jeremiah wrote what he wrote. But he gave the same warning. Your sinfulness is going to cause judgment to come to you. But along with that declaration of judgment, there was and there always is a declaration of hope. And he says to Israel, this is ultimately what God is going to do. The mountain of the Lord, it shall transcend and be greater than all other mountains. And God says, the nations will flow to me. They will come to me. There will be peace. Why? Because I will make peace. Who is our peace? Ephesians 2. Christ is our peace. But there's no peace right now, Pastor Jeff. We've got wars and all kinds of things going on everywhere. Well, you're looking at the wrong thing. Because the Scripture says He is your peace. That's like the disciples saying, Jesus, how can you have peace in the back of that boat when there's a storm blowing? And Jesus' answer was basically, you guys don't have faith. In other words, you're looking at the wrong place and at the wrong thing if you're looking for peace. Because you're not going to find peace in the storm, but you will find peace in me. Jesus never denied the reality of the storm. He said, I'm greater than the storm. How do we know that? Because he made the storm go away. There's wars on earth today and earthquakes and terrible things. But I'm going to tell you what. God is greater. He's greater. His peace is greater than any war man can start. His peace is greater. And so there is hope. Go to Jeremiah chapter 23. Now, last week we finished uh, looking at Jeremiah 29. We said Jeremiah 29 was a letter written to, the, uh, to those carried away from, from Judea captive to Babylon. And it was a letter Jeremiah wrote to the captives in Babylon. And I want to look at two verses here in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. And we see hope in these verses. Now remember, Jeremiah has prophesied 23 years to this nation to no avail. And the captivity came. And the people denied it. They lived in denial, lived in denial till they couldn't live in denial anymore. You know, that's what a lot of people do today. A lot of people live in denial until they just can't live in denial anymore. And then, I don't know, I'm amazed sometimes at how people can even continue in denial when you think, how can you still be in denial? But people find a way to live in denial. This is what Israel was doing. They were living in denial. And Isaiah says, hey, I'm telling you what, it's coming, it's going to happen, but have hope in the midst of it. God didn't leave them hopeless. Church, we're in a world. We're not of the world, but we're in the world. But we're not in the world without hope. We have hope. That's what we're celebrating today is the hope that God has given us in the midst of this crazy, mixed-up world that we're living in. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. Now, he's telling them this in the midst of pronouncing doom and judgment upon them. But, but God is always giving us hope. He says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name. You should mark right there. This is his name by which he, you should mark that he right there because it's an important he. This is his name by which he shall be called the Lord, our righteousness. Who do you think that's talking about? That's talking about Jesus Christ. I'll answer that for you. This is the name by which he shall be called the Lord, our righteousness. There's hope right there. Judgment's coming, you false shepherds. You nation that's stiff-necked and resistant to me, captivity is coming, but I'm telling you what, 
God says, I'm going to make a promise to you. I'm going to raise up a king and a kingdom, and he shall prosper. In his name, he shall be called the Lord, our righteousness. And thank God, he is our righteousness because we have none for ourselves. Now go to Jeremiah 33. This is one of those places that I find so intriguing in the Scripture that if you don't read closely, you might miss it. So don't miss it. We're talking about the power of hope. Jeremiah is pronouncing doom and judgment. But in the midst of the doom and judgment, he's giving them hope. Remember what he said in chapter 24? God said to the captives, he said, I am the one who caused you to be carried away captive but I have done this for your own good. For your own good, I've done this. Jeremiah 33, let's begin in verse 14. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will perform the good things which I have promised to the house of Israel. Those good things refer back to the letter he wrote in chapter 29. Remember, then you'll call upon me, Then you'll seek me. Then you'll find me. When? After I do my plan. 70 years in captivity. You rejected me all before that, but after I do my plan for 70 years, you're going to call on me, and guess what? People, I'm going to listen to you. Now you reject me, but then you're going to seek after me with all your heart. Why? Because I have a good plan for you. I don't think evil towards you. I think peace towards you. A good plan to give you a good future and a good hope. This, is what, this was God's promise. And so here's, this is what he's referring to. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. I will perform the good things which I have promised to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. We know who this is referring to. This is Jesus. He shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell safely. Now look at this verse, this next section. And this is the name by which she will be called. Now what's interesting, in in chapter 23, he said, he will be called. Here it says, who's he talking about here? He's talking about Jerusalem. This is the name by which she will be called shall be called the Lord our righteousness. Do you notice that that he and she have the same name? You know what happens when you get married? Wives, what happened to your name? I know you like to put it in parentheses on your check there. But when you married your husband, traditionally, there was a reason why you lost your name and took his name. Do you notice whose name Jerusalem takes right here? Jerusalem takes his name. You know why? Because you can fast forward to Revelation chapter 21 and you will see that Jerusalem is also who? The bride of Christ. And I promise you that the bride of Christ will have the groom's name. They will have the same name. Not only will they have the same name, but... As Paul says in Ephesians 5, hey, I'm talking about a mystery here. I'm talking about Christ in the church, and the two shall become one. Do you see the hope? Do you see the hope that transcends even a nation of people that lived 2,500 years ago? God is speaking to His people of all times. You are part of that city that will bear this name, the Lord, our righteousness. Because the Lord is our righteousness. You have his name. This is the power of hope. Don't lose hope in this world. Have hope just like Israel was to have hope in the midst of her captivity. Don't lose hope in the midst of this world. Have hope because God has made a promise to us. 
And how do you know he's going to perform it, Pastor Jeff? Because he has proved himself faithful. And he cannot be anything but faithful. Now let's fast forward over to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, 18. The power of hope. Here in these verses in Romans 8, there is an expectation seen in hope. Let's begin reading in verse 18, Romans 8, 18. For I consider, this is the Apostle Paul, who's writing this letter to the church at Rome. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope. Kind of like Israel. They didn't go into captivity willingly, but they were taken captive because of Him who put them in captivity in hope because He had a hope that He wanted them to have. He had a good plan. For the creation was subjected not willingly but because of Him who subjected it in hope because the creation, verse 21, itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. I'm telling you what, the salvation of God will utterly save everything. It saved you right now if you're in Christ, but I'm telling you what, it will utterly save everything when all is said and done in the consummation. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Verse 22, For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. There is hope and expectation. Paul says, I have an expectation. There is a groaning in creation, but there is also a groaning in me because of the reality of what God has done in Jesus Christ. For we were saved, verse 24, for we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. See, part of the problem is the church is trying to find her hope in all kinds of things that that at best are only going to last your lifetime. But God wants us to have hope in things that are eternal, not temporal. And so this hope has been prophesied from the beginning. I mean, starting in Genesis 3.15, when God said to the snake, the seed of that woman is going to crush your head, buddy. And there's not anything you're going to be able to do about it. Now, that's not in the Bible, but I believe that's exactly what God meant. And the devil has been trying to do something about it, but I'm going to tell you what, to no avail. The harder he tries to do something about it, the more he plays into the plan of God to bring about the very thing that Satan is trying to prevent. To the point that the nations raged and they crucified the Son of Glory and fell right into the plan of God. And Satan didn't even know it until it was too late. Hope, church, it's the power of hope. This hope is made sure in Jesus Christ. It's made sure in His birth. It's made sure in His life. It's made sure in His death. It's made sure in His resurrection. It is made sure in His church. The very fact that we are here today makes sure the hope the Scripture is proclaiming to us. There would be no church if there were no hope. And everything this word is declaring 
trying to open your eyes so that you may see Christ is to give you hope. Because your hope is in Him. It's in Him. It's not in the quality of your life, though you may have a very good quality, or you might be very unfortunate and be suffering from some debilitating disease. You know, there are Christians who do that. I've got a nephew down in Victoria who has suffered from, from muscular dystrophy all of his life, has been bound in a wheelchair since he was a child. But I promise you, he knows where his hope is. It's not in Jerry Lewis. It's not in MDA. Thank God for them. I'm going to tell you what, they have done wonderful work on his behalf. But he knows where his hope is. His hope is in Christ. And his condition doesn't change the reality of this promise. It doesn't change our hope. This is the power of hope in his second advent made certain in his first. There's power to hope in his second advent because he was born in that manger, because he did live his life and fulfill the scriptures utterly, because he did die, because he was resurrected, and because you're here today in him, a part of his body. This is why we celebrate His coming. So let's talk about the power of a normal life. I know everybody gets hope, right? We all want to have hope. But let's talk about the power of a normal life. And I want you to understand what I mean by this. Let's go to Matthew chapter 24. There is, I see it all the time, there is this gross misunderstanding among Christians that if their life doesn't look a certain way, if their life, if they're not doing certain things, if they don't have certain labels and titles and all of these things, then somehow their life is substandard. And that, that is so erroneous. We go back to the teaching of Paul in the letter to the Corinthians. Not everybody's meant to be a hand. Not everybody's meant to be an ear. Not everybody's meant to be a nose. Not everybody's a pair of lips. All right, we're, we're all different, and we are what God has made us to be. And that's how your body can function normally. Let's use that term. When all the parts of your body are doing what they were created to do in their proper place, your body functions normally. It does. And I'm telling you what, the body of Christ, whether your body functions normally or not, whether your physical body functions normally or not, has nothing to do with whether the body of Christ is going to function normally. Because God is bigger than what might be wrong physically with your body right now. God is bigger than what might be troubling you emotionally right now. You have hope for healing and wholeness. Why? Because of who God is. But even if it doesn't come when and how you think it should or the way you want, I'm telling you what, God is still bigger than that. So let's get our eyes on this big God who has given us hope throughout His Word. The power of a normal life. Matthew 24, verse 36. Let's begin there. But of that day and hour, this is the apocalyptic scripture that we were talking about at the beginning of, of this message. Of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. We should just leave that right there. And not, we should just quit writing books and having sermon series on when something's going to happen. We should just leave that alone. That's not, that, that's not what we're commanded to do. We're commanded to faithfully live our lives. And when it happens, it's going to happen. The question is, are you going to be ready when it happens? You spend your time trying to figure out what Jesus didn't even know, and the angels don't know, that's not normal. That's not the normal life I'm talking about. All right? For in the days before, in the days of Noah, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For in the days of Noah, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. They did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, I don't have time to go into it, but if you go and you read in Genesis, you'll see that that 
when Noah was 500 years old, God told him to build an ark. Okay? We see that the scripture says before that, God says, God says, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost say, I will not strive with man more than 120 years. That's not a span of age. That was a span of time. That doesn't mean the outside a human being can live is 120 years. That's not what that scripture means. God gave man 120 years to get his act together, and at the end of 120 years, he's going to flood the earth and destroy everything. And we see that when Noah was 500 years old, he had three children. I'm assuming he had triplets because it says when Noah was five years old, I mean 500 years old, he begat, not five, when he was 500 years old, he begat Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So he has these three sons at the age of 500. At 600 years of age, the flood comes. So between the birth of of Noah's children and the flood, there was a hundred years, okay? So somewhere between that hundred years, when Shem, Ham, and Japheth were born and the flood came, we know that Shem, Ham, and Japheth grew up. We know they married. They didn't have children until after the flood, and I think God did that on purpose. They didn't have birth control back then, okay? So God in his sovereignty, did not allow those three sons to have children until they got off the ark and there was an earth for them to raise their children on. But I want you to see something here. We often read this. In the days of Noah, they were eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage. We, we read that from one side. We're looking at the wicked. and Is there anything wic- wicked about eating and drinking? Is there anything wicked about marrying and giving in marriage? There's not. We're commanded to do all of those things. So there's nothing inherently wicked. Those are very normal things to do in life. Can we all agree on that? They are. And and Noah and his sons did all of those things leading up to the flood. We know that because he had those boys at 500 and the flood came at 600. So somewhere in that 100-year span of time, they found wives and got married and had families ready to have children when they got off the boat after the flood. So those things in and of themselves are not bad things. They're very normal things. What I want you to see is that Noah and his family did very normal things while they were obeying God and and living by faith, preparing an ark for their salvation. They did very normal things. Let's go on. Now the difference is this. Noah and his family continued to do these things in faith, but the rest of the world did not. Okay? The key here is faith. The hope of His coming does not exclude a normal life. We shouldn't look at the promised coming of Christ as something to disrupt our life, like waiting for a thief. Jesus uses this in Matthew 24. If you knew when the thief was going to break in, you would be up waiting for him and not allowing him to break in, right? You'd have your 357 or your 45 or... Whatever, you know, it's like at Conway's house, he says, we don't call 911. We, we, we have Smith & Wesson. <laughs> but, but, but the point that Jesus is making is, you don't know when the thief is going to be breaking in. So the promise coming of Christ is compared to this in terms of the unpredictable timing of the event. His coming is not to be feared or dreaded. Do you look forward to a thief coming and breaking in 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 your house in the middle of the night? No, you don't. Are you fearful and dreading the coming of the Lord? You shouldn't. You should fear and dread having a thief break into your house at night, but you should not fear and dread the coming of the Lord. So Jesus is not telling us we should be fearful and dreadful of His coming. If we are His children, we should anticipate it, expect it, and look forward to the glorious blessing that it's going to be. Amen? So as the days of Noah, they did these normal activities. They lived life. Noah's family did them, but they did them in faith. The rest of the world did them, but they did not do them in faith. They didn't do them out of belief in God. They did them for all the wrong reasons. Same 
reason people live life today and do all the normal things you and I do, but if they don't do them in and out of faith, then what's the scripture say? Anything we do that's not of faith is sin. Let's go to the next verse, verses 40 and 41. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. Now, working in a field and grinding were very normal activities in that day. In many places, they're still very normal activities. Now, I'm not going to get into a whole rapture theology here. I want you to look at what's being presented here in the Scripture. This is, this is living life. This is a very normal activity of living life here. What is going to be taking place when the Lord comes unexpectedly? Well, Jesus said, you're going to have two people, for instance, doing very normal things. One's going to be taken and one's going to be left. Why? Because one was doing, they were living a normal life in faith and expectancy of the promise God had given. And though the coming was unexpected, they lived their life in faith. They didn't freak out and sell all their possessions and move to the top of a mountain waiting for the return of the Lord. They didn't start some cult and write some book trying to scare everybody. They just lived their lives normally, doing the things that you had to do every day. I mean, we need to eat every day so they're working in the field and grinding so they can feed their children. They're living a normal life. And when the Lord comes, God says, will I find faith on the earth? Not while you're waiting on the mountain, but while you're living a faithful life in me, a normal life. Church, there is, there is power in living a normal life. The, word, the world thinks we're weird enough already. Don't make it any worse than you have to. You have jobs, you have responsibilities, you have families like everybody else. In many ways, your life doesn't look any different than the atheist that lives two doors down from you or works two cubicles over from you. In many ways, his life, their life, looks exactly like your life. The difference is vast, though. While they're normally living their lives, they're not living it in faith. But you are. So we're not called to be weird or abnormal, but we are to live our lives normally, day in and day out, in faith. That is what distinguishes us. That is what distinguished the two men and the two women here. One was in faith and one was not. That's what distinguished Noah and his family from the rest of the world. He was in faith and the rest of the world was not. They all did the same things, but one did them in faith and one did not. So working in the field, grinding, very normal activities, they can be done in faith or not. The promise of His coming should not disrupt the normal activities of life, but provide hope as we continue in them. Look at the next verse, verse 43. But know this, that if the master of the house had not known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Not be ready, fearful, dreading me, but know that I'm coming. Well, when are you coming? Well, I don't know that. Only my Father knows that. But I'm telling you, I'm coming. And we want to persist. But when? But when? But when? But when? But when? Hey, I'm coming already, all right? Do you believe? Do you trust? Do you believe that because I was born in that manger, because I was born, because I lived, because I died, because I was resurrected, do you believe I'm coming again? Yes, Lord, I believe. Then live your life like you believe it. Go to work like you believe it. Interact with your fellow employees like you believe it. Raise your family like you believe it. 
pay your bills like you believe it. Interact with your neighbors like you believe it. This is the power of a normal life. So look at verse 45. Who then is a faithful and wise servant? Who, that's a good question. Who is a faithful and wise servant? Whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season. Do you know there is not anything more normal than cooking dinner? That's pretty normal, isn't it? There's a lot of people who would just say, you know, I'm just, my life has been reduced to washing dishes and cooking dinner, raising these kids, providing for this family. I had such visions of grandeur that my name was going to be on lights and I was going to write a book one day or I was going to... See, that's the problem. Nobody wants to live a normal life anymore because we don't see the power of a normal life. Because we've been conditioned because Hollywood has made us believe that all of our lives should be abnormal, spectacular. The, the media should be chasing after, the paparazzi ought to be trying to snap pictures of us everywhere we go. Do you know the, the very small and finite percentage of people that live that life? And I really wonder how many of them will experience the blessed, glorious return of Christ in a good way. And here we've bought the lie into thinking that living a normal life, there's something subpar, substandard about that. Something that somehow God can't use me because all I'm doing is cooking dinner and raising my kids. Really? Someone cooked dinner for Jesus. Someone raised Jesus. Thank God. Mary did. I don't see anywhere in the Scripture where Mary performed any miracles. To my knowledge, she hasn't written any sermons or preached to mass crowds. But she raised the Son of God. I'd say that's pretty normal and pretty spectacular. So there's nothing more normal than serving dinner, yet this is exactly what the faithful and wise servant is commended for doing. We are commanded to faithfully carry on living life with the expectancy of His coming. See, this is what Advent is about. Can we live our lives normally every day and have the expectancy of His coming? Can we live with the, the awe and the wonder of His coming? It's, it's going to happen. It, it doesn't matter really whether it happens in my lifetime or not. It will be no less awe-inspiring and no less wonderful. Whether I meet Him when He splits that sky open or whether I pass by the grave and become absent from my body and present with the Lord, it, it doesn't really matter. When I see Him face to face, it will be glorious. And I know, and many of you know, that you will see Him face to face because of what He has done. And because by His grace, He has brought you into life through faith in Jesus Christ. We're commanded to faithfully carry on living life. With the expectancy of His coming, we are to obey in this hope. Go ahead and cook dinner. Go ahead and do the dishes. Go ahead and raise those kids and go to work every day. Live a normal life in faith and expectancy and be salt in this earth and be light in this earth. That's what we're called to do. There is a living, there is living a normal life and then there is living a normal life in faith and expectancy in Him. That is the power and hope of a normal life that testifies in faith of His coming. Church, that's the power and the hope of a normal life. There is something powerful in that. That's what it means to be the salt of the earth. That's what it means to be the light. And that's what we're called to be. This is what we're celebrating. His coming speaks of that. This is what's going to lead up to His coming. It's going to be His people occupying until He comes, living 
normal lives in faith every day, believing and trusting God for the miraculous. But not losing hope if it doesn't come the way we wanted it to. Amen? Let's all stand. So this is the journey we'll be on for the next uh, three weeks.